my greatest influence came then from, you know, hip hop artists like Tupac, Common, Nas, who like kind of spoke to this lifestyle that I was a part of and being in poverty and being black and then having to really make something out of yourself with nothing. So that probably is the major thing that has shaped my perspective. That's Melody Sanders. Mel recently received her PhD in chemical biology from the University of Michigan. Before pursuing a PhD in Michigan, she earned both a bachelor's degree in biology and a master's in biochemistry from Syracuse and worked as a senior scientist in development at Johnson & Johnson. Mel is also a fierce social justice activist and the co-founder of STEM and Color, an organization dedicated to supporting the success of underrepresented minorities in STEM fields through mentorship and strategic partnerships across both academic and corporate sectors. I was fortunate enough to meet Mel while we worked together briefly on a project pertaining to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts on campus, and I was instantly struck by her seemingly tireless passion. Perhaps what I admire most, though, is the confidence and clear sense of self she exudes. As soon as I started this project, I knew I wanted to interview her for it. In this episode, Mel will share her experience pursuing science as a Black woman and the lessons she's learned along the way. We will also discuss the integral role of conversation in social justice progress, how to find a good mentor, and the importance of being able to say no. My name is Sarah Remberg. I'm a senior in the LSA Honors Program at the University of Michigan, and this is How to Student, a show where we explore all the things that make college so stressful and help students, just like you, be successful. I wanted to start by hearing a bit more about Mel's background. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I grew up extremely in the trenches and extremely impoverished. So I always kind of missed out on many things as it relates to education, as it relates to resources, as it relates to the assistance that I needed within school. So it always kind of instilled in me this kind of hunger to be more than my environment. Although I didn't have a lot of role models, I listened to hip hop. So hip hop was like actually the first major influencer and to be honest, mentor to me because it provided a realm for me to be able to one, escape and two, to be in a place where I can relate to the voices that were coming through on either the radio or in like my CD player or for those of you who are old as me, my cassette tape. It really told a story and gave me encouragement and it made life more bearable. Being a part of something that is not necessarily pretty, the ugliness is kind of the thing that forced me to shift into something positive. And that's like pursuing my education after I graduated high school. What drew you to pursue a career in science? The thing that drew me is I took, you know, a couple of science courses in high school and, you know, a couple of teachers told me I was good at it. So like, why not consider going to college and doing it? It wasn't deliberate. I can't say that I was intentional in pursuing science. I just saw a way out of a lifestyle that I despised, so I just went for it. While I fell into science by chance, I definitely stuck with science because 
I was able to foster a love and passion for the work that I do. And I was also able to simultaneously pursue an activism flair and incorporate SS for underrepresented minorities into science, creating like a pathway and a gateway for young professionals to have a path in science and to be successful in science. As I mentioned in the intro, Mel co-founded STEM in Color to help the next generation of students underrepresented in STEM fields find pathways to success. I wanted to give Mel the chance to describe the great work she's doing through the organization and tell us how it came to be. So as I mentioned, not only have I found a passion for science, but I've also been able to use this passion for science and my positionality as a platform to create like greater equity as it relates to having those who are underrepresented in science. So from the onset and beginning my own career in science, I was keenly aware of the lack of diversity in STEM. At Syracuse, none of my peers were Black. None of my professors were Black. So it was a complete cultural shock coming from Atlanta to Syracuse and not having or seeing anyone that looks like me and being able to have a network that kind of pours into me and champions me for success. Knowing that and having this intimate familiarity with a lack of a support system because of your identity and also a lack of mentorship and also being ostracized because of your identity really instilled in me the desire to create some, you know, change to contribute to efforts that reduce inequalities in STEM. So fast forward from undergraduate to my PhD career now, uh, pursuing my doctorate, I was found myself in the same situation six or seven years after starting my undergraduate degree. So knowing this and seeing kind of not having the proper mentorship or professional development and having that tailored contextually based on my identity kind of was the inspiration behind STEM and Color when I was talking to my co-founder, Amari Baruti about some of the, the similar challenges we face when pursuing our doctorate. I next asked Mel to give some insight into what it's like to be a Black woman in science. It can be extremely lonely, extremely isolating, and the workload that you have to assume is often far more than the workload your white counterparts or your non-Black counterparts have to assume, one, because you're Black, and people already have this internalized belief that you're not successful, or you're not good enough, or you're not intelligent enough, or you don't fit the part of being a scientist. It played a role in ways that many people don't think about as far as it relates to training and mentorship. I wasn't given access that other students and my peers got access to as it relates to being trained on an instrument or being able to go to specific conferences or being recommended to go to specific conferences. The impact is tremendous. And the experience can be a very painful experience just because of someone's opinion or internalized belief that's not factual on who you should be or how you should be. Obviously, what Mel describes is extremely problematic. So I wanted to ask her what well-meaning students can do to create positive change in this area. You know, that is a difficult question to answer. And I say that because it took us centuries to get here. It took us centuries to have this systemic institutionalized system of racism and bias and sexism. And it will take us some time 
to remove and begin to eradicate ourselves of it. I think the first step for students is a keen awareness contextually and historically of their positions of privilege or lack thereof. And then from that keen awareness, like gaining a knowledge of how one's identity influences their experience. I think that is very, very key because before you can begin to be actionable, you have to educate yourself on the systems at play so you can make the most out of the change you're trying to create and see the most out of the change you're trying to create when you do decide to to put in actions. So once a student is able to gain that awareness and knowledge and skill set, then they can begin to think of ways to combat these systemic inequalities. One way is using their voice. There's this culture of silence in the higher education and fear that's very much warranted about speaking up when seeing acts of discrimination or inequalities or unfair or differential treatment. So I think one thing they can do off the bat is use their voice when they see something. See something, say something. And that is definitely a hard thing to do. But to begin to gain confidence in speaking up is a skill that will be super important to create kind of this meaningful and positive change that you speak of. Do you think it's important to encourage these types of conversations between friends of different backgrounds? I think that is extremely important. I think when having these conversations amongst friends, that's kind of gets the impetus going to create some broad scale change. So I think that is extremely important. Now, how you have those conversations is also important. You definitely want to set a setting where people feel okay with speaking out and that the receivers that are listening on the other end are able to listen actively and acknowledge responses and feelings that arise and be able to sit with some level of discomfort. I asked Mel to speak to some of the challenges she's encountered while pursuing higher education. Definitely science is hard. So (laughs) (laughs) I can relate to that. (laughs) So that was definitely a challenge for me, just having a background where I didn't necessarily have the resources or the training to be at the top of my class or at the top of my game from the beginning. It was a huge learning curve for me. In and of itself, science and many professions are very challenging. So you have that and then having the added layer of maybe not having the particular education that makes you as competitive as you need to be and trying to catch up was a huge challenge. I will also say lacking kind of, you know, the economic security um, going into school and higher education was another challenge. When you don't have the financial resources or the proper support systems, it adds another layer of stress on top of your studies that is difficult to overcome and to bear simultaneously. And of course, you know, being Black in, in academia is like a challenge in and of itself that we spoke to before. What have you learned through being able to manage the stresses that come from being a Black woman in science and also just being a chem PhD student. I mean, everyone (laughs) says grad school is like one of the hardest things to get through. So do you have any things that you've learned from this experience or tips that you could offer in terms of general stress management? Take time for yourself. Self-care is important. And when I speak of self-care, I mean eating well, exercising, maintaining and contributing to your mental health in constructive ways. Maintaining your mental well-being is key. 
You should also be able to critically reflect on what you can do and what may not be reasonable for you to do and kind of be able to accept that without feeling guilty. For instance, you know, there are times when my schedule is completely booked and I can't make meetings or I can't make these unrealistic soft deadlines that many professors and advisors like to impose on you and being willing to say, hey, I'm not going to be able to make this and leave it at that is something that I found to be extremely helpful in balancing stress. Because when we carry, you know, guilt or sadness or anger from not being able or disappointment from not being able to accomplish one task, that just adds on to our stress. So I think, you know, that's something for me personally that has been super helpful is to like know yourself well enough to know what you can and cannot do. Two, learn how to receive feedback, the good feedback, the bad feedback, the silly feedback. Learn how to receive it in a way that doesn't necessarily ruin your day. There's going to be people throughout your careers and throughout your life that really are invested in your success and are going to champion for you. And they're going to give you very important constructive feedback. On the other hand, there are going to be some naysayers and people that I like to call hater haters because they be hating all the time that will not necessarily give you good feedback. Learning how to like hear that feedback and leave it where it is, disregard it is also key. So it doesn't put a damper on whatever aspirations you have set out. Lastly, I think you have to have some persistence. Like you're going to fail. So you need to accept failure. You're going to have personal things come up, have, you know, professional things come up. So you're going to need to accept that and be able to be flexible and have mental flexibility and stamina to continue to move forward in spite of these things. Not that this is in any way comparable to being a Black woman pursuing a PhD in chemistry, but I've sometimes struggled with the idea of being someone with a disability pursuing a career in medicine or even being an honor student at Michigan. I think that it can be unfortunately common for people to not see themselves mirrored in positions they aspire to have for a variety of reasons. So I asked Mel if she had any recommendations for students who don't see themselves represented in the places they want to be. You have to invest and bet on you. Irrespective of anyone, you have to be confident in yourself and that you can achieve, you know, your goals. I think that is key. And then, you know, be willing to put yourself out there so you can build a network and make connections. Not everyone is good, but not everyone is bad either. So I think you have to be able to take the risk and be vulnerable and put your work, you know, your personality, yourself, bring it to the table, allow people to see you, create your own visibility and the people that want to be in your circle of influence will come. It's going to be challenging being the one or the only person in the room that's like you or has this particular identity or has this particular disability, that's always going to be an omnipresent, salient thing that's going to happen. But I think you have to really build a level of confidence to say, this is who I am. I'm proud of it. And, you know, take it or leave it. What do you wish faculty would and instructors in general would understand about your experience and, and others like you, because I know that you're not alone in a lot of these experiences and it's something systemic that needs to be changed. So what would you say to faculty about your experience? 
That's an excellent question. I think, you know, faculty need to come to the table with a more open mind of how they approach training mentees, how they approach their lab environments and their lab cultures and how they themselves take criticism, to be honest. I think faculty needs to be open to receiving feedback as it relates to their mentorship, as it relates to their lab culture, and as it relates to their training practices. And I think that's something that faculty, well, at least the faculty from my experience have a hard time doing is they're not comfortable with receiving feedback if it's negative, particularly if it relates to race dynamics. I find that many can be combative or dismissive or they fail to acknowledge or deflect these types of issues as opposed to trying to understand where the trainee is coming from and change and assist that trainee in navigating the environment and navigating how to create change that works in their best interest. As Mel has indicated already in this podcast, she's a fierce advocate and constantly looks for ways to use her position to raise others up. I asked her to describe her most satisfying advocacy effort. I've done a lot of advocacy efforts. I think it's hard to decide which one is like the most satisfying. I will say the ones that involve youth have been great because these are the people that are going to lead our next innovations, country, and things like that, and seeing the excitement that you inspire in them when you're talking about change or when you're teaching them about science, those have been definitely very rewarding. I will also say doing collaborative work on campus with other organizations or institutes and groups as it relates to promoting mental health and reducing stigma associated with mental health have been extremely rewarding. And of course, anything about racial justice throws me off the Richter and I'm like super stoked to be a part of. How much did your past experiences in school influence your decision to pursue a career in academia? My undergraduate experience was a major contributor in my decision to pursue academia. Even after completing my undergraduate degree and then doing a master's and then transitioning into industry, I knew that I wanted to come back to academia. The first influencer was my mentor that I stumbled upon my senior year of undergrad. He really demonstrated to me what it means to be a scientist and gave me something to look forward to. I wanted his job. I wanted to mentor. I wanted to have these important scientific discoveries and make important contributions to my field. Like he inspired me. Not only did he inspire me, he made me believe in myself. He allowed me to see my full potential and where that could take me. So that was a major influence in my decision to go into academia. I wanted to be this guy. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to inspire students and staff and faculty and colleagues in the way that he inspired me. So that was definitely a major contributor to why I have chosen to pursue academic studies. And I will also say As I progressed through my career, I did see it as a platform to create kind of this change and advance equity. While I was inspired by my mentor in undergrad, I also saw it as a unique way to promote the principles of social justice and on a broad scale. I'm so glad that you brought up that you had a key mentor because I've really benefited greatly from a number 
of mentors. And, and one of the themes of this podcast is mentorship. So do you have any tips for how to find those people? First, do your research. Typically in science, you look at mentors based on whatever interests you about the work that they're doing. Start there. And then once you find a handful or a few potential mentors, and I say potential because a mentorship is an actionable thing. It's not just the title. Potential mentors, once you find those potential mentors, then interview them. And I really mean interview them. Find out the causes they care about. Find out how they approach training and mentorship. Find out how they approach lab culture and resolving conflict. And see if these things align with your values. The science may have brought you to the mentor, but their way of evoking their mentorship practice should keep you irrespective of the science. Never choose a, a mentor and a faculty mentor just because you like the work that you're doing. Definitely see if their core values and their way of doing things as it relates to their leadership over whatever field they're in aligns with who you are and what you believe in. That should be your determining factor when choosing a mentor. I made the mistake um, early on of choosing an advisor who was not capable of being a mentor. I chose the science over the mentorship. And I thought that would be enough. You know, I felt I was smart. I've got persistence. You know, I'm resilient. So I thought that would get me through and I could be successful. Boy, was I wrong. You definitely need, <laughs> need to mentor. <laughs> If you're a person listening to this podcast and you want to become more educated on the issues surrounding diversity in today's world, do you have any go-to recommendations for where to get some good information? I do. I do. I mean, I think it starts in the literature and books. One of my favorite books is like Ibram Kendi's like How to Be Anti-Racist. I think it gives you an important overview of what it means to like fight and combat discrimination in an actionable way. To me, that a piece of work that every individual who wants to create meaningful change should have and read and possess and refer back to and cherish over time is definitely a phenomenal piece of literature. I will also say, as it relates to social justice, there's a book I've recently read that speaks on our ability to be empathetic and be compassionate and love. It's all about love by Bell Hooks. And I think it's something that those before kind of our new day activists wanted to infuse in their social justice movements is be loving and caring, compassionate. Just because you're radical doesn't mean you have to remove yourself from being sensitive to the emotional needs of people. Like this book has taught me phenomenal things as it relates to being someone who cares about an individual and how important to show and demonstrate that caring when you're fighting these difficult and complex social issues. I'm in a seminar about wellness and leadership. And one of the things we talked about during our sort of advocacy portion of the class was how important it is to not only recognize your humanity when being an advocate and the fact that it is stressful, like you get your cortisol riled up and, and it's, mm -hmm. it's deep within you and sort of how to navigate that. But then also recognizing the humanity 
in whoever you're trying to bring to the table and have a conversation with. Absolutely. And so it's, it's great that you brought that up because I found that to be a really meaningful portion of the class. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that is like integral. We often remove our emotions from whatever profession we are participating or whatever cause we are participating because, you know, we're humans. We like to give the appearance of strength. We like to give the appearance of being uninfected. The real thing is like we're going through so many things that it is impossible for us to be uninfected in major ways. So I think it's really important to be in touch with how they say the sensitive side of yourself and show that to the world and the people you're trying to help and the causes that you care about so that you are human. Be authentic. Show your full holistic self. And that includes whatever emotions that come into play. That's why when you mentioned earlier, do you think it's important to have conversation among your peers? Absolutely. But I also think it's important for you to create an infrastructure that people can express how they feel about things. That's important because it all affects us differently. Racism affects me differently than it affected my father. And, you know, sexism affects me differently than it affects my peers and my mentors, everyone experiences things different. And to be able to provide a space where people can feel is important for any movement. Yeah, that's perfectly said. And now for the question I ask all of my podcast guests, what would you tell your freshman year college self? Stay true. (laughs) Stay true to who you are and what you believe in and never move away from that. Because that is what will allow you to achieve the success that you want. I don't necessarily mean success like materialistically. I mean being able to be whole and okay with who you are, irrespective of the outside influencers. Just stay true. Know who you are and keep it close to you. Thanks for listening to another episode of How to Student. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to share and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram for more college tips, episode announcements, and behind-the-scenes content using the handle at Podcast. This episode was created and produced by me, Sarah Renberg, with sound engineering by Eli Sider. Special thanks to Michelle Jelling, our social media coordinator, and Mika Levec-Manti, the project advisor. This has been a presentation of Packard Street Productions.